You're listening to the Harris Beach Podcast, a show that explores evolving issues in the law and how they shape organizations, the way business is conducted, and how we live and work. The information provided in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials are for general informational purposes only. Thanks for listening. Here's today's host. Hello, my name is Melissa Peterson from Harris Beach, and I'm your host for today's episode. I'm joined by Dale Worrell, leader of the Harris Beach Business and Commercial Litigation Practice, and Scott Piper, a partner in the firm's labor and employment practice and chair of the firm's risk management committee. Today, we're discussing the world of non-compete agreements and other restrictive covenants, their usefulness to employers, how they should be drafted, enforceability, and when businesses should pursue litigation. Scott and Dale, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you for having us. To start, can you each briefly share your area of focus at Harris Beach and the lens through which you view and approach non-competes and restrictive covenants? Sure. Let me uh, start off here and then turn it over to Dale. As a labor and employment attorney, I help employers draft the agreements uh, that are ultimately litigated. I also help employers who need to enforce an agreement on the way out the door or perhaps remind an employee about the terms of an agreement on, on the way out the door. Also, if an employer wants to hire an applicant or an employee and say the applicant or employee presents and non-compete to them, the employer has to decide, can I still hire them? If I hire them, what steps should I take? And also, Dale and my practices overlap just a little bit because on occasion I also do go into uh, court and litigate these agreements, whether it's prosecuting the agreements or defending against someone trying to enforce them. So as a litigator, I will obviously look at these agreements from a litigation perspective. I will typically get a call from a client when there is some sort of problem, some sort of dispute, and I will look at the agreement first from an enforceability standpoint. Uh, you know, are we dealing with a low-level employee? Are we dealing with a special, unique, or extraordinary employee? Is the agreement reasonable in scope? All of those types of things. You know, Scott and I will actually work together, bounce questions off of each other uh, in that respect. But even bigger than the enforceability of the agreement, I look at and ask the client about their overall objectives. And what I mean by that is how much damage is caused by the alleged breach of this, this agreement because that's critical to the client's ultimate decision whether to pursue litigation or pursue some other avenue. Is this a secret sauce, so to speak, where you know the client's entire business is on the line, or is this a low-level employee where we can uh, pursue other avenues? Let me just jump in real quick. I think the objectives of the employer is a very important point that we're probably going to talk about a little bit more today. That is a primary concern in my world in drafting the non-competes as well. The first question I always want to uh, cover with an employer client is, okay, what are your objectives with this agreement? What are you seeking to protect? Can you explain what non-compete agreements and other restrictive covenants entail, kind of an overview, and how they are useful to employers? Sure. Let me uh, take a stab at this. The term non-compete and non-compete agreements many, many times is used fairly generically to talk about restrictive covenants in general. I tend to look at restrictive covenants in, say, tiers. The most restrictive tier is the non-compete agreement, which may prohibit an employee for, I don't know, a year, two years, three years, five years from 
competing in the industry that the employer's in. They can't do anything in the industry the employer's in. That is the most restrictive covenant out there. You can ratchet it down a little bit, perhaps talk about non-solicitation of clients' provisions. Maybe an employer doesn't need a restrictive covenant, or maybe that's a little bit overbroad. So maybe a non-solicitation of clients' provision where the employee agrees for, say, a year, some period of time, not to solicit or perhaps not to do business with the employer's clients. There's a lot that goes into the decision of what level you're going to use and how broad the restriction is on each level. But those are the primary agreements that a lot of employers will think about when you talk about non-competes. You can also, in the world of restrictive covenants, you you should also consider and talk about confidentiality agreements, non-disclosure agreements. Maybe a strict non-compete or even a non-solicitation of clients provision is not necessary to uh, protect your business. Instead, you want to protect certain information. Uh, Maybe it's trade secrets or other confidential information. So maybe you have the employers or the employees sign a confidentiality agreement or a a non-disclosure agreement where they agree not to use or disclose certain confidential information or trade secrets. So again, when you're talking about restrictive covenants, I tend to look at them as in tiers of restrictiveness, non-compete, non-solicitation, and non-disclosure slash confidentiality provisions. What should employers keep in mind when they're drafting these non-competes and other restrictive covenants? What should they include? What qualifies as reasonable provisions or limitations? So I'll take the first stab at this. And I can tell you from a litigation perspective, you know, aside from the scope and other limitations, the first thing that I always look for is a jurisdiction and venue provision and an attorney's fees provision. And I'll explain why. A venue provision is extremely important when we're dealing with non-competes because I want all of my clients to be litigating on their home field, so to speak. If the client is here in Monroe County, I would want them to be in the Monroe County courts. Oh, this type of litigation can be extremely intense. Usually start with a preliminary injunction motion, perhaps some expedited discovery, some expedited depositions, document demands, where folks are litigating very intensely at the early stages of the litigation. When you do this, all the depositions will be in your hometown or your home city. You're not traveling to California, you're not traveling to Chicago or anything like that. And that bears upon expense. It, it bears upon uh, disruption to the company. It bears upon a, a lot of things. So that's probably one of the first things that I'll look at when I open up one of these agreements is the venue provision. Attorney's fees, is the client going to bear the expense of this is, uh, because in New York, The only way you can get attorney's fees is if it's in the contract. So if attorney's fees provision is not in the contract, you know that the client's going to bear the expense for this, whether they win or lose. Uh, If there's an attorney's fees provision in the contract, there's a chance that they may recover those attorney's fees. So that would be the second thing that I really look for from a litigation perspective. Once I look at those things, then we can get into the the contract a little bit deeper in terms of limitations and scope and duration and, and, and things of that nature. Those are all key points that I also discuss with employers when we're talking about, do they need an agreement? And if they do, what provisions do we put in the agreement when we draft it? I can't emphasize enough the importance of the attorney's fees provision. So many times decisions are made about what you're going to do in a non-compete case based on, okay, 
there's a chance if I lose, I might have to pay the other party's attorney's fees. That is a piece of leverage that can be very important in these cases if you actually have to enforce one. So, you know, when it comes to drafting, what do you keep in mind uh, or what do you discuss with the employer? I think most importantly, employers should understand that one size does not fit all when it comes to these agreements. So many times I have clients come to me with agreements, maybe they've just printed off off the internet. That usually is not a good idea. It's got to be customized to the employer's needs. So much like Dale said at the beginning of this podcast, one of the most important things is what is the employer's objective? What are you looking for? What are you looking to protect when it comes to these agreements? There are a number of ways to protect what you're seeking to protect. We can put provisions in that maybe you haven't thought about, whether it's the attorney's fees provision or we offer employers options like, do you want to put a provision in an agreement that says the employee upon separation of employment is required to present your agreement to any subsequent employers? That way, you know that the new employer is on notice of the uh, restrictive covenants. That's something to think about. Inevitably, in discussing with employers, what provisions do you want in the agreement? Do you want the most restrictive non-compete provision in, in your agreement? Is it necessary? Dale might have some thoughts on this, but one of the discussions we always have is in New York, courts will, what's called blue pencil in most circumstances, the courts will blue pencil an agreement that's overbroad. Basically, that means they could modify and strike down, strike out a provision that is overbroad, say the non-compete, and enforce the rest of the agreement. If that's the case, does the employer want to include that just as a deterrent? Many times, employers, when considering what they want to put in their agreement, will make decisions based on deterrent effect, not necessarily whether something's ultimately enforceable down the road. A lot of decisions go into uh, deciding uh, how to draft, what to put in a, uh, a restrictive covenant agreement. Again, most importantly, one size does not fit all. They shouldn't just print one off the internet. You got to talk about what are you really trying to protect. Coming at this from a slightly different angle, if an employer is presented with a non-compete or other restrictive covenant, what should he or she look out for? I regularly get agreements from clients who are about to hire an employee or they've hired an employee and the employee says, well, I forgot to tell you, I have this non-compete with my former employer. So if you haven't hired the employee yet, then you've got to factor that into your decision. From a strictly, are you going to be violating, violating the agreement terms standpoint, what position are you hiring them into? Many times we're talking about salespeople. Not all the time, but many times we're talking about salespeople. Are you hiring them to work in the same position they worked uh, in at the prior employer? Are you hiring them because they have certain customer contacts? Were those customer contacts provided to them by the prior employer? And what does the prior employer's agreement say, of course? Sometimes when I get these agreements, it's apparent that our client can hire them into a position and still comply with the terms of the, uh, the agreement with the former employer. Other times, the reason they're hiring them is because they're going to put a dent in the former employer's competitor's business and it may violate certain terms of the agreement. Then the employer, our client, has to make a business decision. How much risk are they going to take? 
probably a lot in a, like in the litigation context, we, we also discuss how motivated will the former employer be to enforce the terms of this agreement. Many times, the strict enforceability of the agreement, while important, is not determinative. Many times, it's how likely is the former employer going to be to sue this out because you know that's going to cost tens of thousands of dollars to defend, even if you're successful. And if the former employer is a massive company, then you might want to think twice because you might find yourself in some significant litigation. I couldn't agree more. When we get these types of questions, first thing that we look at and evaluate is the motivation of the the other party. How motivated uh, are they going to be to seek to enforce this non-compete? Are they a deep pocket? Is our client likely going to get embroiled in uh, deep expensive litigation? Or is this a situation where we don't think litigation is on the horizon? So it's really a cost-benefit analysis uh, for the client when they're presented with a, with a non-compete. How valuable is this potential employee versus, well, how much litigation costs are we uh, possibly going to incur if we, if we hire this person? And then I build into that discussion all of the things that, that we just talked about, jurisdiction and venue, attorney's fees, provisions, you know, all those types of things uh, are built into this discussion because they all bear upon cost and the stress of litigation. And Dale, building on that, when should businesses decide to pursue litigation in kind of analyzing to what extent non-competes are enforceable in New York State? My advice to clients and the first thing that I always try to evaluate is the client's potential damages as a result of an alleged breach of a non-competition agreement or other restrictive covenant. Does this truly involve a trade secret where you know the entire business of our client is at risk or is this a low-level employee that's really not going to cause much damage to the company if the breach is allowed to happen. Everything flows from that analysis. So that's what we look at. Let me just jump in and add, I'm wondering, Dale, do you see uh, ever see companies want to enforce an agreement to make an example of a former employee? So I hear that all the time, you know, and, and so, uh, and we talk about different strategies on how to make an example of someone because new, news does travel fast within an organization. And sometimes that can be accomplished by a mere letter writing campaign uh, as opposed to full blown litigation. But I always encourage clients not to pursue litigation just to make an example out of someone, just to discourage other folks from leaving and seeking employment somewhere else. You really want to pursue litigation in those, you know, those situations where your, your company is at risk of harm, damages, real damages. You know, the secret sauce, so to speak, is out into the in, in the open. <laughs> and, and that's where you really want to get into that litigation and uh, seek to protect your the core of your business. If it doesn't involve that, it could end up being just a the cost benefit analysis doesn't make sense. I know in one of our previous conversations, you had said not to let emotion drive the decision of whether to litigate. So that ties in. Absolutely. You know, when you, especially when you're dealing with a smaller company, everyone knows everyone. When someone leaves, 
you know, it's viewed as a betrayal to the company. It may not cause the company a lot of damage, so to speak, but that betrayal generates emotion and, you know, that emotion drives the litigation. I try to determine if that's what's driving the client's decisions at an early stage and dissuade them from pursuing expensive litigation if the litigation is really rooted in emotion as opposed to true damages. If the non-compete is made in conjunction with an acquisition, does this impact enforceability? That's a good question, Melissa. It does. What is the general rule, at least in New York? And let me just say, when it comes to non-competes, it's very state-specific. I know this is not exactly the question that you asked. I'll get that in a second. But I wanted to make the point, you know, non-compete law is a state-by-state law. A non-compete may be enforceable in one state and not enforceable in another. For example, California, and we've got a number of clients with facilities in California, they want to have those employees in California sign non-competes. Non-competes, even non-solicitation of clients provisions in California are strictly prohibited by law. So I just wanted to make that point. Everybody listening should understand that's state-by-state determination. Now, with respect to acquisitions, in most states, especially in New York, if there is a non-compete entered into uh, as part of an acquisition, it's generally much easier to enforce those than a non-compete in the context of employment with a typical at-will employee. Generally, courts will see that transaction as much more arm's length. Both parties probably will have attorneys representing them. And one party, the party that typically signing the non-compete is receiving many times hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars as a result of an acquisition. Courts are much more likely to uh, enforce non-competes, other restrictive covenants in those uh, circumstances. And people who sign those, businesses who sign those, uh, need to be aware of that. My last question is a reasonable expectation of cost to have outside counsel prepare a non-compete or other restrictive covenant. Do we want to go there? Well, we do and we don't. You know, from my perspective, the cost of having outside counsel prepare a non-compete is worth it. And Scott can talk more to this because I don't draft them, but I would think it's a minimal expense. But the real cost here comes in the enforceability of the non-compete. If you get into litigation, once you're in litigation, the client's going to have, if you're the plaintiff, the burden of proving and enforcing the non-compete or the restrictive covenant. Depending upon the evidence, depending upon the particular facts and circumstances of the case, this can be easy to do. It can be very difficult to do, which bears, again, on expense. And as you can tell, that one of the common themes through what I've been saying today is the expense because it's so important to the litigation uh, analysis. I've had cases where it's been a couple thousand dollars. We engage in a letter writing campaign. I've also had cases where we get into the expedited discovery, depositions, preliminary injunction motions, full trial, where it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to enforce a non-compete. So the expense up front of drafting a solid agreement is completely worth it from, from my perspective. But even if you have uh, a, a very solid enforceable agreement, if there is a breach or an alleged breach, you still have to weigh the cost of potential litigation. 
where is that litigation going to take place? Going back to the jurisdiction and venue topic, attorney's fees provisions, you know, all of all of those things build, in, build into that analysis. Let me just add, I agree with Dale. I think the, you know, the cost up front is typically minimal. Cost on the back end, if you have to try to enforce one, it will dwarf that. The way I would uh, look at this question, though, Melissa, is not what is the cost of drafting it, but what is the cost to the business of not drafting it? Really, from a business perspective, I can't tell you how many times clients have come to me, an employee who they've introduced to their most important client, they've been working there five years, 10 years, they decide to leave, they take that client relationship, which you gave to them, to a competitor. And our client doesn't have any kind of restrictive covenants in place. You are in a tough position and that could do a some major damage to your company. So the way I look at it most times is not what is the upfront cost of drafting this, but it's what is the cost of not drafting this to your business if things go south down the road. Great. Is there anything you'd like to explore further based on what we covered today? I would just like to emphasize there is no cookie cutter approach to non-competes. There is no one size fits all. I encourage any employers listening to this to really think about what their business needs are. What do they want to protect? Is there important information, trade secret information, other confidential information, most likely maybe a client relationship or maybe even a broker relationship or referral source relationship that is key to your business? What happens if that walks out the door? If you don't have any protection for that, you need to think long and hard about AB, having outside counsel prepare a restrictive covenant agreement and rolling it out to your employees. It could be vital. You would hate to look back in three years if the worst case scenario happens and think, uh, what if I had just invested in a restrictive covenant agreement and rolled it out? I'd be in a much better position to protect my business. I'd like to thank Dale and Scott for joining us today. Thank you. For more information, visit harrisbeach.com slash labor and employment and harrisbeach.com slash bclit. You'll also find Dale and Scott's contact information so you can reach out with any questions. Thanks for listening to the Harris Beach podcast. Be sure to visit harrisbeach.com to join the conversation and access show notes. Please rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast.